morning, everyone. Um, while I set up my, my preaching rig here, I wonder if you could turn to Romans 4. So we're back in um, Romans 4 again, and we're going to be looking at verses 9 to 12. So verses 9 to 12 of, of Romans 4. Is this blessing, this blessing of justification, only for the circumcised then? Or is it also for the uncircumcised? For we say, faith was credited to Abraham for righteousness. In what way then was it credited, while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? It was not while he was circumcised, but uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while still uncircumcised. This was to make him the father of all who believe, but are not circumcised, so that righteousness may be credited to them also. And he became the father of the circumcised, who are not only circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith our father Abraham had while he was still uncircumcised. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your precious word. We thank you for the way in which you inspired the Apostle Paul to bring the great gospel of Christ to the nations and to record... um, Lord, almost a a summary of this gospel in Romans, that we might grasp it, um, hold on to it, and take it to others as well. And we pray your spirit would now be our teacher, and would illumine us, um, would strengthen us, and encourage us through your word, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, apparently genealogy, the tracing of one's family roots, is the second most popular hobby in the U.S. after gardening. In... (laughs) In recent years, the popularity of of websites like Ancestry.com that enable you to trace your line of family descent has grown exponentially. Now, in exchange for a DNA sample, you can find out precisely where in the world your distant ancestors came from and how closely related you are to any other members of the global population who have also obviously given samples of their DNA. Now, why is this so popular? Perhaps because... In the hyper-connected online world in which we live, we can seemingly go anywhere and know anyone, but the result is that we end up feeling like we no longer belong to any particular people or to any particular place. We feel disconnected, and so we, we lose a clear sense of our identity. And so tracing one's roots promises a connectedness and a rootedness that is incredibly hard to find in our world. Now, in Romans 4, verses 9 to 12, Paul is claiming that regardless of our particular DNA or any aspect of our cultural heritage or anything that we might unearth about our distant history, faith in Jesus Christ roots us into the great family of Abraham, the family that is set to inherit all the blessings that God has promised to his people in the Bible. Now, the point that Paul is making in these few verses, in a nutshell, is that because justification is by faith alone... It is not for Jews alone. The family tree of the justified descends from Abraham and crosses all races and cultures, um, all peoples, all political, marital and sexual affiliations and orientations. Because justification is by faith alone, it is not for Jews alone. It's a blessing that is totally unrestricted in its reach in the world. And what that means is that this blessing that Paul's been talking about in Romans 3 and 4 is available to each and every one of us regardless of how we self-identify or regardless of how others identify us in the world. Now, Paul makes this point in two stages. 
Um, First, he says that Abraham was justified by faith while he was still uncircumcised, verses 9 to 10. Now, the question that Paul asks in verse 9 effectively raises the question of whether this blessing of justification, of being declared to be right with God through faith in Christ, of whether this blessing is restricted to Jews only, or whether it extends beyond Jews to Gentiles as well. Now, remember that this blessing in question is the blessing of God's justifying forgiveness, a forgiveness that is total, powerful, and final. But is this blessing, Paul asks, only for the circumcised, that is, the Jews, or also for the uncircumcised, that is, the Gentiles? Now, why does Paul ask the question like that? The distinction he is making is definitely the distinction between Jews on the one hand and Gentiles on the other. But why speak in terms of circumcised and uncircumcised? As I read through the passage, you probably noticed that Paul is is using the words circumcision and uncircumcision about as many times as you possibly could in a few sentences, which makes it rather awkward for us to read. Now, many other peoples in the ancient world practice circumcision, not just the Jews. But it's the Jews that are in view here. Paul's not talking about anybody circumcised generally. But by Paul's day, the Jews were so identified by this practice of circumcision that they were called the circumcision. And Gentiles, derivatively, are called the uncircumcision. And sometimes these terms could be thrown at one another as as terms of derision. Now, obviously, if Jews had come to be identified in this way by this particular um, practice and right, it reflects the great cultural and religious significance that they attached to circumcision. The practice of male circumcision was first given to Abraham by God in Genesis 17. Those who didn't keep this right were to be cut off from the people, which suggests at the very least that the practice was an important identity marker for Abraham and, and his heirs. Now, it's easy to see the logic of the position Paul is refuting here. If Gentiles are to inherit the the blessings of salvation that God has promised to Abraham, didn't they first need to join the Jewish, Jewish family by taking on the right of circumcision and whatever other practices distinguish Jews from Gentiles? How can you lay claim to the blessings of Abraham if you do not join the family of Abraham? Now, one obvious problem with such a view is that followed through logically, it would exclude, wouldn't it, all female members of Israel from the blessings of salvation because God specifically instructed Abraham and his seed in Genesis 17 verse 10 that every male was to be circumcised. So this is the practice of male circumcision, not female circumcision. So what about the women? Are they, like Gentiles, also to be excluded from all these blessings that God has promised? But Paul doesn't go down that line of argument. It's not the line of argument he uses. He goes straight to the biggest problem. Abraham was in an uncircumcised state when he was justified. How was Abraham's faith credited as righteousness, Paul asks? Was it while Abraham was in a circumcised state or uncircumcised? Answer, not circumcised. Not circumcised, but uncircumcised. So Paul's making the point, very, very simple point, that Abraham was justified in Genesis 15, and then many years later in Genesis 17, 
when we're told he's now reached the age of 99, he was circumcised. So there's this long time gap between the two events. In between comes Genesis 16, and we heard Paul in Galatians chapter 4 this morning alluding to the events of Genesis 16. Now, we don't know exactly how long that intervening period was, but it was lengthy. The rabbis calculated that there were probably 29 years between the promise of Genesis 15:6 and Abraham's circumcision in Genesis 17 when he was 99 years old. Now, we don't know whether it was 29 years or not, but we do know that it was several years later. And that's all that Paul needs to show. That's, all, that's the only point he needs to make to underline that circumcision could not have been a qualification for Abraham's justification. It can't have been because it happened so many years later. It was given on the back of Abraham's faith and was meant to be practiced as an expression of it. Abraham, the man of faith, was to be circumcised and to circumcise his seed. So the simple point Paul is making is Abraham's circumcision cannot have contributed in any way to his justification. Now think about that a moment. Think about that order. First Abraham believes, and then he is circumcised. One of the more subtle ways in which justification by faith alone is opposed is like this. You'll hear variations of this argument. What people will say is that what Paul's opposing in Romans 3 to 4 is a legalistic, rules-based way of getting right with God. What he's opposing are fleshly works that are a product of our self-sufficiency and independence from God. He's saying you can't get right with God like that. But, so the argument goes, the works that flow from grace and faith, they do contribute to our justification. Faith works through love, as Paul puts it in Galatians 5 verse 6. And God justifies us on the basis of the works of love that flow from faith. So the argument goes. In a recent book, Salvation by Allegiance Alone, Matthew Bates argues for a version of this view. He presents it as a new view, but it's an incredibly old view. The way he puts it is this. Paul stridently opposes the idea that good works can contribute to our salvation when performed as part of a system of rule-keeping apart from the more fundamental allegiance to King Jesus. And he then goes on to explain that works that are an expression of our allegiance to King Jesus are part of our justification. In other words, so this argument goes, while works apart from faith won't justify us, the works which flow from faith will justify us. Now, that is clearly not what Paul is arguing in Romans 4. No work of any nature, whether done before we believed in Christ or after we believed in Christ, whether commanded by God or not commanded by God, whether performed by a person of faith or not performed by a person of faith, no work of any nature contributes to our justification. None. None whatsoever. Justification really is by faith alone. When Abraham obeyed God's command to be circumcised, he did so as a person of faith and as an expression of his faith in God's promises. But his circumcision had no bearing whatsoever on his justification. He was justified by faith alone. It's liberating to know that not only is our past life swallowed up in God's powerful forgiveness, 
but that our present feeble efforts at obedience, which flow from our faith in Christ, neither count for us or against us at God's judgment. It is only Christ and the righteousness that God has provided in him that counts for us before God's judgment on that final day. Works evidence our faith, but they do not secure our justification. See, Paul is arguing that since justification is by faith alone, it is not for Jews alone. And he makes this argument in two stages. First, Abraham was justified by faith alone, apart from circumcision. Second, Abraham has become the father of all believers, both uncircumcised and circumcised. So let's look at that second point now, that Abraham is the father of all believers, both uncircumcised and circumcised, verses 11 to 12. So if circumcision is not a qualification for entry, what is it? Paul says it's the sign that guarantees that the entry requirement has been met without any human qualification. That's my paraphrase of what Paul is saying. God gave the sign of circumcision, verse 12, a seal of the righteousness of faith that Abraham had while uncircumcised. Now notice two things here about this circumcision. It's a sign. And Paul's picking up on the way in which God himself described it to Abraham back in Genesis 17, verse 11. It's a pointer. Like any sign is intended to point out a reality beyond itself, that's what circumcision is. It signifies something. It points to a reality beyond itself that's important. So it's a sign and it's a seal. And what this means is that it's a sign that authenticates. It's a sign that guarantees. So in the ancient world, a stamp of authenticity, an imprint, would be put on a letter or a legal document to guarantee its authenticity, to guarantee the genuineness of what was being sealed, of what was enclosed in that document. And it would be particularly important if the sender wanted to guarantee that the contents really were genuine and were not a forgery. So, Paul says, by instituting circumcision, God was giving Abraham a guarantee that he really was righteous by faith. He was assuring Abraham that the righteousness that he had by faith was the real deal. Now, if you've ever been to um, Taronga Zoo, you'll know that after you've shown your membership card or your entry ticket, um, you'll receive a, a stamp on the back of your hand. And that stamp on the back of the hand is a sign that guarantees. It's a sign on your hand that guarantees that the entrance requirement has been met and that, there, that you therefore have the right of entry. Now, the sign of circumcision is a sign like that, but with, with a difference. Okay? You can work out the difference. Okay? <laughs> The sign of circumcision is not on the hand, okay? <laughs> I, sp I, spoke to so I spoke to a faculty member yesterday and said, I'm speaking on Abraham's circumcision tomorrow. Shouldn't you be doing that? And he said, I did it once and I won't be doing it again. So that was very, that was very encouraging. Um, anyway, it's different. The, si the sign of circumcision is different. 
if the person at the gate at Taronga Zoo sees the stamp on the back of your hand, they will rightly assume that you have personally qualified for entry because you have paid the entry price. Circumcision is also a sign that guarantees, but it does not point to the qualifications of the person who bears the sign. It does the opposite. It points to the qualifications of the God who's given the sign and the impotency and powerlessness of the one who bears the sign. The sign of circumcision guarantees that the entry requirement has been met because it's been underwritten by someone else. It's a seal of the righteousness of faith, Paul says. In other words, it's a seal of a particular type of righteousness, the righteousness of faith. And faith, remember, is trust in another, in the provision of another. It's a righteousness that has nothing to do with our own righteousness, but everything to do with God's righteousness. So the sign of circumcision wasn't placed on the back of the hand. Why is that? Two reasons. The first is that it pointed to the promise of God. God had promised Abraham that he would bring blessing to the world through his seed, through one who would come from his own body. The second is that it symbolized Abraham's powerlessness, his impotency, his infertility. Remember Abraham's age when he was circumcised. He was 99 years old. Now, Paul's going to really underline this point later in in the chapter. He was impotent. Abraham and Sarah were not about to have children. The sign of circumcision simultaneously points to the promise of God that God would raise up a seed for Abraham and fulfill all his promises through this seed and the powerlessness of Abraham. He was unable to do anything to fulfill God's promise to him. He was totally disqualified the righteousness by which the righteousness he needed to have to be able to lay claim to these promises was not his. It was God's. And Paul says, God set up this whole plan of salvation in this way, first faith, then circumcision, so that, this is the end of verse 11, Abraham would become the father of all believers, whether or not they bear the mark of circumcision. Abraham has become the father of all who believe without being circumcised and the father of the circumcised who are not only circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith Abraham exercised before he was circumcised. So the person who bears the mark of circumcision is not at the front of the queue by virtue of this sign. He's not at the front of the queue by virtue of his cultural and religious privilege. He needs to get in line like everyone else and follow in the footsteps of Abraham's faith. Because justification is by faith alone, it's not for Jews alone. No one is excluded because they do not bear the marks of privilege and no one is included because they do. Part of what it means to be a member of Abraham's family by faith is that religious, ethnic, National and cultural identity markers do not define who we are anymore. And we refuse to let them define who we are. Paul says in Philippians 3, verses 7 to 9, that whatever he used to count as gain, he now counts as loss for the sake of knowing Christ and being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, but a righteousness that comes from God. And when he says what I used to count as gain... He is not only referring to his 
legal performance record, he's referring to his cultural pedigree as someone who was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In other words, he had an incredibly big religious and cultural position in the world. And he says that counts for nothing in being right with God. Now, as I prepared today's sermon, I was hoping and praying that there would be a special word of encouragement for exiting students and for our dear brother Ed, who, as we've just learned, is shortly to become warden of St. Paul's College. And then I thought, this is not really that ideal, a passage about Abraham's circumcision. (laughs) But actually, I think it's suitable after all, Ed. Ed, you've been a model to us of someone who values your heritage and knows its value, but who holds it lightly for the sake of the gospel. You have a deep love for the church and the traditions in which you've been raised, and that is clear. But even clearer is your transparent love for the gospel that is so deeply enshrined in the great tradition that you exemplify. And so we pray that as you walk in line with Abraham and all other men and women of faith, that many at St. Paul's and elsewhere would also get in line and join this great procession of the people of faith who've built their lives not on their cultural heritage and privileges, but on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And to exiting students, I think there's a special word here for you as well. Consider how secure your justification is. God chose to inscribe a sign on the flesh of Abraham and his male seed that they would know that the righteousness of faith was the real deal. How much more do you think he wants us to know and to be sure that the righteousness that he's now secured for us in the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus is guaranteed? As you go out from college and you go into your various jobs, both to the known and and the unknown, you need to know that something holds you fast, that something secures you that is not your religious or cultural heritage. Abraham had this reminder in his flesh that his own impotency was no barrier to God's promise being fulfilled. God would raise up for Abraham a seed. This he has done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ, who, Paul says in Romans 4, verse 25, was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised for our justification. So our righteousness is now as secure as he is alive. And so in the ups and downs of life and ministry, that is a wonderfully precious truth. And I pray that you would take it with you and offer it to others, this wonderful truth that we are justified by faith alone in Christ alone. Let's pray together, shall we? (coughs) Heavenly Father, we do thank you and praise you. Um, for this wonderful justification by faith alone. Help us not to be ashamed of this glorious biblical truth. Father, um, give us um, the grace to know how secure and certain your gift of righteousness is. And Father, we pray that um, whatever communities, whatever Christian gatherings and churches we are part of now, and um, whichever ones that we're going to be going to, that they would be places where people of every culture and of every nation, um, of every age, of every gender, of every language, of every form of um, sexual self-identification, we pray that they would be places where all are welcomed into this free and gracious embrace of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And we pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Amen.